Okay. Well, guys, hopefully y'all are uh, ready to hear this. I hope that I'm ready to share this. But as I've been studying this week, I've been talking with Katie a lot about it. It's been a passage that it's been very rewarding to study, and I think it'd be a wonderful passage to memorize. But we're going to kind of do things a little different. So we've been talking a lot about 1 Peter in our Bible studies. And in particular, we've been talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how that ties into baptism. And last week, we talked about um, our incorruptible inheritance. We talked about how we're kept by the power of God for that inheritance. So we touched on eternal security. But we skipped a couple verses. So we didn't really talk about the prologue. And I felt like the Lord was leading me to keep talking about 1 Peter, to keep studying that with y'all. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to pick up where we left off, and that's going to be starting in verse number 13. But before we pick back up where we left off, we need to cover what we didn't cover last week. So we're actually going to start in the very beginning, and we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to unpack those, and then we're going to look at the rest of the text. So the sermon title this morning is As Obedient Children. And I think that really does a good job of encompassing what this message is going to be about. And as we're looking at verses 1 and 2, at the very beginning of 1 Peter, this is his salutation. So we'll talk a little bit briefly about who the audience is. And we'll talk about a couple of statements here, a couple of interesting ideas that are mentioned in these verses, but don't really have a lot of explanation. It's very interesting that whenever the apostles were writing this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they take for granted that we understand what some of this means. And it's ironic that theologians will wrestle over these concepts, but it's just stated. Like, okay, you know what I'm talking about. So we're going to unpack this a little bit because it includes the idea of election, and that's a controversial topic. I don't really want to spend the whole time this morning talking about election, but it needs to be properly understood by all Christians. So we're going to look at it. But uh, starting in 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Notice just initially that we have Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ. So this Trinitarian formulation is very common in the writings of the New Testament. It's really hard for people not to see that grouping. So if someone says, where's the Trinity, just have them read the New Testament. I mean, it's all over the place. But let's talk about the audience here. It says, to the strangers scattered throughout these different areas, and this would be modern-day Turkey, where these areas are located. So these are Roman provinces. We're fairly certain that these are Jewish Christians that are being uh, um, written to here. And the reason we're confident is because the word strangers is often used in the New Testament to refer to Jews who are living outside of Palestine. So they're part of God's people, but they were scattered. And in fact, when it says here, scattered throughout these regions, the word scattered is where we get the term diaspora from. If y'all have ever heard of that word before, um, James uses that same word in his letter. So we're, again, fairly certain we have the same audience here. These are Jewish Christians that are scattered outside of the Holy Land, outside of God's promised land. My, my, uh, my book says, my Bible says, 
the refugees. Yeah, and, and essentially that's what they would be, right? So we have to discuss what exactly is meant here because there are some commentaries and some commentators that would take the opinion that this is spiritual, so there's strangers in the world. Obviously, if you're a Christian, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, you're a stranger in the world. Um, and obviously this is in our home, our, our citizenship is in heaven. But since he is writing to the strangers, and that term tends to be used often to refer to Jews outside of the promised land, since he is using the term diaspora here, I think that anybody who's reading this would assume that he's referring to Jewish believers, and that's the plain sense, that's what we're going to go with. Uh, and it also fits well with the fact that you know Hebrews, First and Second Peter, James, these letters all have a whole lot in common, and it's because of that Jewish background, that Jewish audience. And he touches on that a bunch. Obviously, Peter, all throughout his letter, is going to show how Israel is a type of the church, and a lot of things that were said about Israel weren't completely fulfilled in Israel. They were foreshadowing something more to come, and we talked a lot about that in the book of Hebrews. But the audience would be Jewish believers in Christ. Um, that's why some people think that the word elect here refers to them as the elect people of God. I mean, after all, the Jewish people were chosen. I don't think that's what elect means here because it says they're elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. So this is referring to being born again. This is referring to the Holy Spirit washing us clean. You're not automatically washed clean just because you're part of God's physical ethnic people. So... You're part of God's physical ethnic people if you're born of the line of Abraham. But here they are made part of God's elect chosen people through sanctification of the Spirit. That's referring to a spiritual election, not the election of Israel nationally speaking. So let's talk about what this election means. And on your notes, um, I have this summarized here for you. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't put on your notes because I realize it's just too much. But... Uh, the meaning of elect here, first, it's based on foreknowledge. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So God foreknew these people. And that is part of the electing process, is that he knows them beforehand. He knows them and what sets them apart from other people beforehand. So election is conditioned. It's based on foreknowledge. But what exactly is seen by God or known by God, rather? And while it's not explicitly brought out here in the text, I think that if you compare Scripture with Scripture, for example, if you were to go to Romans chapter 8, it talks about how uh, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, that comes first, he also predestined. So obviously, again, foreknowledge comes before predestination. What sets someone apart, though, from the rest of the world? What sets us apart, Right. Well, obviously, we could say sanctification of the Spirit. Obviously, election includes sanctification of the Spirit. But why does God sanctify some people? Why are some people born again and other people not? And y'all can go ahead and tell me, what's the answer? Y'all know the answer to that one. Because they choose to do what, though? Reject. Okay, so if you don't reject, okay, if you choose conversely to accept the Lord's gift of salvation through faith, then you become born again. And so based on, I think, some simple logic, what God sees, what God knows that he approves of, and he sets people apart for election, 
is faith. He knows their faith. He knows them as believers. Again, it's true that God doesn't necessarily know a thing. It's like he sees a thing because that's how sometimes people will word it. God foresees their faith. Well, really he foresees them. He knows them personally. Okay. He knows about them, but what makes them different than everybody else? Obviously, if we maintain the idea of free will, and if you're listening to this, you may have a problem with free will, but I've always heard it said, and I think this is a biblical principle, ought to implies can. So if God says you ought to believe, that implies that you can. It basically says a responsibility is on you to make that decision. And he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Uh, A commandment that is forced on somebody that they must comply with because they have no choice. It's really God pulling the strings. That really wouldn't be obedience to a commandment because they're not actually choosing to do so. They're not choosing to repent. They're not choosing to believe. So election is, I believe, according to foreknowledge. If this was as the Calvinist Reformed uh, position holds, then it would say they're foreknown according to God's election. According to Calvinism, God knows things because he determines things. So the reason he knows that a person's going to get saved, I got saved when I was six. God, of course, knew that from eternity past. But why did he know that? According to the Calvinist interpretation, it's because he chose me. So he chose me. That's how he knows that I'm going to believe. Okay. God's planned out exactly down to the minutest detail, how I am going to come to faith because he's determining that it's not something I choose. It's something he chooses for me. And so he knows beforehand that that's going to happen. And so they would say that he's all knowing because he's all planning. So if if he plans out everything, if he if he if he um, you know think of things in terms of like a computer program, he knows how things are going to play out because he programs everything a certain way. Obviously, if you believe the Bible, that's very problematic because Scripture teaches that God permits things. Uh, scripture teaches that God allows things. It says that he uh, it, he abhors sin. There's no sin in him, no unrighteousness in him. God wants people to believe. He loves people. He doesn't want them to reject him. And so he enables us to make that choice. Yes. So I think that if we're, again, interpreting scripture with scripture and we're using our God-given common sense, then what this is saying is God makes a choice, but it's based on something that he foreknows. And I think that his choice is I'm going to set apart all those who believe in me to these things. They're going to be sanctified. And because they're sanctified, I'm giving them a way to walk, a way to live. And so God knew from eternity past me. He knew me. He knew that when I was six years old, I was going to believe. And God was pleased with that. God was pleased with what I did before I did it because he is all-knowing. I believe in simple foreknowledge. I don't think you have to explain foreknowledge. I think it's just God knows. It's as simple as that, right? I don't believe that we have to explain, okay, well, God knows because he determines. No, I think that God can just know something without causing it. I think that obviously God does know certain things and causes those things to happen. Yeah, I mean, we... But we don't... Yeah, we don't need to rationalize it, though. That's the goal here is to... take Take the word of God at face value, have faith, and believe that, okay, God says he can know something. God obviously knows that thing or knows that person without making them exactly the way they are. I mean, he does create us. He has a plan for us, but he uh, He makes us choose. I mean, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. I mean, he put them in the garden. He didn't say, okay, guys, well, there's no point in really having this whole choice deal, you know, with this tree and that tree, because I've already decided that I'm not giving you a choice. I mean, he put them in the garden and he gave them those options, just like he gives us ours. And of course, did he know what option they were going to choose for? I mean, what were they going to do? Like... 
he, he knew, no doubt, because it says before he created them, he had a plan. Yeah. Jesus was the lamb. So he knew that they were going to fall, but he had a plan to redeem them. But God didn't set them up for failure. He did give them a genuine choice. I mean, the tree of life was something there and available to them. I mean... Exactly. So even in Cain's, even in Cain's situation, it was choice. So when it says elect according to foreknowledge, this is referring to God knowing us as individuals. He knows the person who's going to believe and he knows the person who's not going to believe. And the person who, even if it was their last breath on their deathbed, that person who's going to believe, he has chosen them for something. Okay. He's got a plan from eternity past to grant that person in real time regeneration justification, and ultimately, when he comes back, glorification. So that's what we're chosen for. But obviously, God's sacred choice isn't just us getting something. It's also, after we get it, doing something for him. Now, are we saved because we commit to doing something for him? No. A lot of people will think that. And in fact, um, I just posted something on Facebook yesterday on my personal account. It was just something that came to mind. I was thinking about these things as I was preparing for this message. And a lot of people think of salvation as giving your life to Jesus. That's not correct. Salvation is letting Jesus give you life. Okay, Jesus doesn't need us. He wants us. He doesn't need us. Okay, when he created us and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, okay, imagine yourself in the garden, okay? Did he need Adam and Eve? No. So he wants them, and he's saying, you have to want me too. You have to receive what I'm giving you, okay? So salvation is us saying yes to God. It's saying, I acknowledge you, I recognize that I am a sinner, that I have broken your law, and I recognize that I have no way of making up for that, and I am accepting your gift. Now, when you accept that gift, it is quite natural, okay? I think, I think inevitably to say, thank you, absolutely, I'm, I'm so thankful. But the fact of the matter is we're still in the flesh, and I think that if someone had a very mature understanding of themselves and their own sin, when they accept salvation, they couldn't say to God, God, I'm never going to sin again, because they know full well that they're going to. So getting saved is not about making a promise to God, God, I'm swearing off a life of sin, because you can't. What you do is you're saying, Jesus, I can't do that, so I need you to forgive me, because when I sin again, okay, which is probably going to be tomorrow, or the next day, I need to be, or the next hour, I need to be covered, right? I need you to forgive me because there's no other way I'll be accepted apart from that forgiveness. And of course, no doubt there's a desire to honor God, but we have these desires that we don't have the ability to carry out. If you're not a believer, guys, whoever is listening to this, if you're not a believer in Jesus, trying to live a life pleasing to God is impossible. If you don't have a new nature, if you don't have the Holy Spirit empowering you and, and being your counselor and your comforter, you will not be able to please God in your life. I remember having a conversation with a young lady. She's like, I'm not ready to give my life to Jesus. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to let Jesus do something for you right now. Don't think about what I'm going to do for him. Okay, You're thinking ahead. You're thinking, okay, I, I, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm ready to give all this stuff up because, listen, I'm really tempted. And though I have this desire to not do that, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do that. Okay, You're already going to be defeated if you think that way. What you need to do is listen to Jesus and he's telling you, I love you. I will change you. Okay, I will change you. Before thinking about what comes next, you just need to let me love you. And you know, have y'all ever had someone in your family who's done that? Like you want to do something, you want to help them. They're like, no, sit down. I'm going to serve you. And it reminded me as I was thinking about that of 
Jesus at the Last Supper when he washes their feet. And Peter's like, no, I cannot let you do this. No, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm the servant. And Jesus said, no, you have to let me serve you first. Before you can serve me, you have to let me serve you. And so getting saved is saying, serve me, Jesus. And once he does, we're thankful and we we feel the love of God. We know the love of God. So we want to serve God. And you know what? It's not going to be easy. Okay. Though we're transformed, we're sanctified, like he mentions here, sanctified in the spirit. We're automatically changed and set apart for God, but we're babies, right? And babies have to learn. So what do you do? You get plugged into a church and people tell you how to live. So God doesn't look at you and say, listen, okay, I am going to save you, but only if you promise me right now, you're never going to do this stuff again. That's not salvation. Salvation is not God standing aloof. God, God is on the tip of his toes waiting to jump down into our lives if we just say yes to him. And he'll say, don't worry about what comes next. I'm going to change you. I'm going to empower you. And all you have to do is just let me. And, and that's what happened at the very beginning of Israel's history. Whenever they were brought out of the land of Egypt and they were brought in front of the Red Sea and God parted the waters, he said, I'm, I'm going to bring Pharaoh and his men. And all you have to do is be silent because I will fight for you. All you have to do is be quiet. Now, there would be a day, right, where they would fight. A day would come where they would be challenged by God. The father's saying, all right, you're old enough to take on some responsibility. But at this point, none of that. He says, I'm going to do it. I'll fight for you. So salvation is saying yes to God. And then God's going to continue working in your life. And you have to, of course, as you get plugged into a church, as you develop your relationship with God, you have to learn. Again, you got to develop new habits, a new thought process, transform your mind. That's a daily challenge for all of us, right? What we're doing right now is, is trying to remind ourselves of what our calling is. I mean, that's the first point on your notes there. This is God's sacred choice. It's through faith unto service. But it's not something that's going to happen overnight. We have to work at it, right? We have to abide in Jesus. Now, but the working part, that's not our salvation. That's discipleship. I've heard it put this way. There's A truth and there's B truth. The A truth is salvation truth. It's a free gift. The B truth is discipleship truth. Okay? And whenever we're studying scripture, it either is in the A truth category or the B truth category. But right here he's saying that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So <laughs> I think it's it's kind of interesting. I imagine God, when he saves somebody, when he saved me, looking back on it, it's like, you have no idea what you're in for. Okay, right now, what do you want? What's on your mind, buddy? I don't want to go to hell. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. He's like, I'm going to do that for you. But you have no idea what's going to happen next because I'm going to change you in a way that you can't even wrap your mind around. And I've got a special plan for you. And of course, there's part of every human being that wants to be involved in that plan. But when it says the sprinkling of the blood, this refers to how whenever the co covenant, the Mosaic covenant was inaugurated, Moses sprinkled blood on the people. So that blood represents cleansing, but it also represents dedication. And of course, when you first get saved, do you understand all of what God's going to call you to? No, you don't. But you know, I need salvation. That's my focus right now. And of course, I think that what often comes at the same time is the excitement of what's going to come next, you know? 
And of course, there are challenges. The Lord tests our faith as we grow. He chastises us. He disciplines us. But the sprinkling of the blood represents the cleansing of our sin and also setting us apart. It's like he picks us up and he puts us over here. He's like, all right, you're in this category now. You're one of my chosen. This is a sacred choice. You're chosen because you've accepted my gift, but you are now removed from the rest of the world. You're no longer like anybody else. And that's a really exciting thing to think about. Whenever you think about election in those terms, it's not this sense of dread. Am I really the chosen? Well, have you believed in Jesus? Well, then you're the chosen, right? And you're set apart from the rest of the world. Now, let's keep reading so we can go on to the next point. I want you all to flip. Well, for me, i got to flip a page. Go to verse 13. And now we're going to read through this text here. Uh, it, it comes in two sections. So starting in verse 13, we'll read to verse 21. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought about, or sorry, brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you holy is holy, Sorry, uh, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of con uh, conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. So the second point, guys, based on this passage is our sacred redemption. So we're called, that's the first point, sacred choice, and this is accomplished through redemption, through his blood, unto hope and holiness. And the, the main themes here in this text is hope, the hope that we hold on to, the hope that we, we cling to until the end, and holiness, which we live in this world as the set-apart chosen of God. So you could break up, and this is what I did on your notes, you can break up these sections into two basic categories. The first part is the orders. So what are Peter's orders? Our marching orders are, be sober and hope to the end. And I, and I put in uh, parentheses here the negative side to this. So if Peter says, be sober and hope to the end, what does that mean? One can lose sight. A Christian can lose sight. What's so sad to me is in studying how a lot of people interpret these passages, they're always hanging over your head like something you're reaching for but you can't grab. They're always hanging over your head assurance. Am I really one of the chosen? Am I really one of the saved? Am I really the elect? And they'll say, well, if you're not sober and you're not holding on to that hope until the end, then you're not the elect. But that's not what Peter's saying here. He's saying you are chosen. He's recognizing that these people he's writing to are brethren. They've been born again. He actually states that fact. He doesn't say you might be born again and prove it. <laughs> no, he says you have been born again, as we'll read in a moment. So you have been born again, so... Therefore, you need to be uh, sober and hope to the end. One can lose sight. It's possible for a Christian to lose hold of that hope. And when you drop it, because there have been times in my life where I felt like it was slipping through my fingers, you've got to reach and you've got to grab it again. You've got to take it up. And, and, and a lot of times it's hard because the world puts an uh, enormous weight on our shoulders. 
And it's not just the world, right? I mean, it's the enemy. The enemy's trying to get us to drop that hope. Okay, it's like passing the baton to someone else in a, in a race. You know, the devil is trying to get us to drop that baton so it can't go on to the next person, right? So somebody else can begin their race. They can get saved. They can be born again. And so we have a lot working against us. So Peter is basically giving them the hard truth here. It's going to be difficult. Okay, you can lose sight, but be sober and hope unto the end. Because if you do that, that grace, that special grace that he talked about, and we discussed last week, that inheritance on all the rewards that it involves, it's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is worth it. It is going to be worth it to see a smile on Jesus' face when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. The next order is be ye holy. Be ye holy. One can defile his walk. Can a Christian be unholy? Yes. Yes, you can. And he goes on to give reasons why we should be holy, why we should fear God, why we should be sober and hope to the end. And some of these reasons, I think, are so profound, even though they're simple. So, for example, uh, there are two types of reasons here. And I've stated them um, on your notes as a priori and a posteriori. Now, that's a, a fancy expression. Both of those are. They're Latin. But it's important here because... They refer to two different kinds of reasons. So the first type of reason that he gives us is the a priori one. A priori means basically beforehand. It's not something that you derive from experience, okay? It's something that up front you already have a reason to do. So what should we think of when we honor the Lord? Well, it's written. He says, why should you be holy? Because it is written. It's written. It's in the word of God. Now, that, of course, assumes that the person who is part of this audience has a high view of Scripture. But what Peter is basically saying is God made you. God's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. And he has authority. And he has stamped his authority in the Word of God. It's been written, be holy, so therefore do it. It's like your mom and your dad telling you, okay, do it. Why? Because I said so. Do it. So this assumes that God has the authority. And what's sad is a lot of times, I think, in the evangelical world, they move away from this. And it becomes so existential. It's based on experience. It's based on emotions. It's based on feelings. But what about just the fact that the Bible says so? And that's enough for us. It used to be enough back in the day. And the, the deeper your faith is, you're going to come into... You're going you're gonna to come into those moments in your life where you don't understand why God's doing something, why he's allowing this, why he's telling you to do this. And when you don't understand, are you supposed to try to find some existential reasoning or, or, or rationale behind why God's doing what he's doing? You're not going to be able to. So what he says to you is, I love you and I said so. Do it. And, and you know what? We do, the same thing we do the same thing with our kids. And so we shouldn't be surprised if God says that to us. Peter's saying, you're children, God said so, so do it. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we hold to inerrancy and we don't let that be undermined. Because if you undermine that, you're undermining one of the chief reasons for our obedience. Um, recently, me and Katie were talking about verses about inerrancy. And in, in John chapter 10, Jesus, when he was talking to uh, the Jews who were opposing his claim to be one with the Father, he said, it says it in the word of God, it's written. And the word of God can't be broken. That's what he said. The word of God can't be broken. It can't be wrong. And so from the world's perspective, we may sound crazy when we say that, but we don't need to back off from that. 
And that's one of the things I really like about ministries such as Answers in Genesis. Yes, they do have brilliant scientists who are working around the clock writing these papers and trying to show people, look, there's evidence for the Bible. But ultimately, if they're asked, what is your reason for believing this? They say, the Bible says so. And I'm like, amen to that. And that may sound crazy to the world, but that's fine. Because what it does is it demonstrates that our ultimate authority is not man's reasoning. It's not what we think or even what somebody else thinks or the consensus thinks. It's what God says that matters. So that's the first reason. The second a priori reason is I'm holy. So God says, you need to be holy because I'm holy. Now, obviously, when it comes down to human beings and our relationships with one another, that wouldn't always work. Like, you do it because I do it. It's like, well, so you do it, that's fine, but why should I do it? But when it comes to God, it's different. Not only is he the king of kings, and so he has a right to tell us what to do, but he is the ultimate good. This is something that I think Christians don't understand because they've never studied philosophy. But the idea the idea is goodness is not something above God. Like, God's got this standard. God's got his own book. And, his, and this book says, okay, God, you need to make sure that you're good all the time. Don't do these things because that's bad. Okay, some people think of God as like he's bound himself to do something according to a higher standard above him. That's wrong. There is no standard above God. But some people think that God arbitrarily comes up with right and wrong, like it's an empty book. And when God created mankind, he said, okay, I got this empty book. Uh, how about not lying? That sounds like a good commandment. Don't lie. All right. So it's arbitrary. So God could have said, uh, don't tell the truth, and it would have been just as good because God said so. And that's not right either. The reason why we should be holy is because God is holy. When we think of good, as a kid growing up, one of my favorite things to think about was knights. And why, why did I love knights so much? Because they were fighting for good. And they needed no other reason other than it's good, so I'm going to fight for it. They were a champion of what was right. And that appealed to me so much. Because what, what is a better reason to do something other than it's the right thing to do? And there's honor in that. There's nobility in that. That's the way we ought to live our lives. But what is that goodness? Or rather, the better question is, who is that goodness? Because morality, right, is a personal thing, isn't it? It's very personal. It involves people. So when we think of goodness, we need to think of a person, a capital P person, and that person is God. He is goodness. So if God says something, it will be good because he is good. God is never going to command something that is wrong because there is no wrong in God. There's no unrighteousness in him. Okay, He himself is perfect and the standard of what is right and what is good and what is holy and just. Now let's look at the next one. Um, it says fear. So as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves uh, according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. So he's talking to them as children of God. When we talk to an unbeliever, they're not children of God. This is something that's, I think, really common, common idea even among Christians. We're all children. We're all God's children. Well, in a sense, we're all created by God, right? We all belong to God. We all have some connection to God. Uh, I mean, God is emotionally attached to us or else he wouldn't have been bothered whenever we sinned against him, right? He wouldn't have cared so much about us to send his son to save us. So God does have uh, this love towards mankind, but unbelievers have not been adopted into his family. They are not born again. So when God looks at an unbeliever, they are someone who he designed to be their child. He intends for them to be his child, but they're not yet 
they're not until they accept it. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in there and he, he said, this is yours. I've given you dominion over everything. I made you to be like me. But before they could actually enjoy that for eternity and receive that incorruptible inheritance that could never be lost, they had to choose. They had to make, it's like seal it in. Okay, it's kind of like when you say, well, this is my answer. And they're like, is it your final answer? Okay, well, you've already given your answer, but have you sealed it in? Not until you push that button down. It's sealed now. Adam and Eve, okay, were in the garden, and God was saying, you've got to seal it in. I've created you for this, but I'm not going to force it on you. Is this going to be your eternity? And of course, why wouldn't it not be? There was the deception involved, and they chose to believe in the serpent rather than believe in the Lord. And of course, that's the same challenge facing people today, even believers. Are we going to believe God? Are we going to trust his word or not? But once we make that initial choice to accept Jesus as our Savior, we're sealing it in. We're sealed by the Holy Ghost until the day of redemption. Now, let's look at a posteriori reasons. So these are more personal, more experiential reasons. And people, honestly, they operate based on this most of the time. You know, if God tells me to do something, it'll be like, all right, God said so. But why does God's opinion matter so much to me? Is it all philosophical? Well, God is abstract good. No, I usually have some other reasons too. And those reasons are, I was redeemed. He says, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So we were delivered from a law we couldn't keep. The payment of this redemption is perfect. It's Jesus's blood. So we need to remind ourselves that our redemption is not based on the blood of the animals that were slain. That only lasted for a short time. It was transient, but God's redemption is everlasting because it's based on the everlasting son's blood. And God has been thinking of us since the beginning. So it's like God's been thinking of you this whole time. God's redeemed you with the precious blood of his son. You were delivered when you couldn't deliver yourself. You've been redeemed. Doesn't that make you happy? Doesn't that make you thankful? So even apart from God says so, you should be like him. He loves you and he did all this for you. So that's another reason there based on our own personal experience that he can appeal to. I can appeal to anybody and say, listen, God has authority. I don't care who it is, unbeliever, believer, I can say God has authority. That's that common ground. We're all part of God's kingdom, okay, in the sense that, you know, he rules over the universe and he made us to be a part of it. But when I appeal to a believer, it's a different kind of appeal. I can say not only you should you listen to God because you're a human and you're created, but you've been bought with a price, so that's a, a, an additional reason. And another reason is by him you believe, which means you were incapable of believing. You were incapable of even acknowledging him until he came into the world and he made that acknowledgement possible. This is uh, something that John's gospel deals with a lot. In uh, John 1, 9, it says that uh, Jesus, the true light, uh, gives light to all men so that all might believe. Okay, and he lights every man that's in that cometh into the world, it says. So everyone that is born, okay, he gives them light so that way they can believe. Now, of course, that light is going to vary depending on your circumstances. But if you respond to what you have, like creation, morality, your conscience, if you respond to that, I believe that God's going to honor that and give you more. And that's why I think it's interesting in Scripture we have examples of that. Cornelius, he knew the Old Testament. So he honored God with what he had, and then God gave him more. And eventually he heard about Jesus and got saved. In John chapter 6, it says that, you know, you can't come to the Father. Or sorry, you can't come to the Son unless you're drawn by the Father through the Holy Spirit. Well, that's true. Calvinists, they point out that quite a lot. But in John 12, 32, the exact same term is used, and it refers to drawing all men to myself. I shall draw all. And so that's not 
referring to a specific class. That's referring to everybody. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says, you're stiff-necked. Why do you always re uh, resist the Holy Spirit? They're being drawn, right? They're being brought to the Lord, but they're saying no. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so what this indicates is that when you were redeemed, you were literally incapable. It's like if God put that free gift right out in front of you, you weren't even able to reach out and take it because you were blinded. You couldn't even see it. You couldn't see your sin. You couldn't see any of that. And he made that known to you. It's not that they didn't know that they had done wrong. Obviously, we know that we've done things wrong even before we hear about the gospel. From a very young age, we know that there have been times our conscience told us not to do something and we did it. But did we really understand how serious our sin was? There, that's what I'm saying. So you... You know, you know, like, man, whenever you do something wrong, like somebody knows I've done this and th there's a dread there and you do feel bad to some extent. But do you know that, listen, I deserve eternal condemnation because of this sin until the Lord gets a hold of you? You don't. And so he's saying you didn't even know how bad you were, but the Lord mercifully opens your eyes so that way you could recognize the problem and go to him for the solution fall off. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where the, the light will peek in enough for you to be like, you're in this dark room and you see light over there and it's dim. It's not as bright as it is for us. Like we've let the light into our lives. We know the Lord, but a person has to decide, am I going to, am I going to investigate that? Am I, am I going to receive that? Or am I going to ignore it? And the Pharisees did. And a lot of people do, unfortunately, but he's saying these people, you have believed, and you believe because God made it possible. And that's what we need to remind ourselves of, that even the, the time that we express faith in the Lord, it's because he was merciful in us to open up our eyes. We could have kept walking and fallen into the pit that has no bottom. But instead, he opened up our eyes and he said, listen, don't go that direction anymore, except me. Now, the third point is our sacred mission. And this is the next section. If you'll read with me, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, verse 22 through 25. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible, by the word of God which, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth. Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. But the word of our Lord stands forever. Jed, you need to get in your seat. Quit rolling around on the floor. Now. All right, speaking of fatherly authority. Okay. And it says in verse number 25, But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. When he refers to the word of God here, he's got something very particular in mind. He's talking about the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This good news of our salvation. So, we talked about our sacred choice, or God's sacred choice, rather, his choice of us, and that was through our faith unto service. We talked about the sacred redemption, which is through the, the blood of Jesus unto hope and holiness, and now we'll talk about our sacred mission. And what is the one thing he tells us to do? Love one another fervently. There are a lot of things that he could tell us to do. <laughs> and he's going to, of course, in the next chapter, talk about our priesthood and our ministry to the lost. But up front, he doesn't even talk about the ministry to the lost. He said, love each other. Start in the home. Okay, and I'm not talking necessarily about, you know, our homes as individuals, obviously there, you know. But he's talking about in the Christian home, the family of God, this, this group of people that you were once strangers. 
You didn't know each other. It's like I have no blood connection, okay, to a number of y'all, right? And we weren't friends that we just met out in the blue and said, hey, you know, we have similar hobbies. We have similar interests. And so let's be friends. You know, it wasn't like that. It was, you're a believer. Okay. You automatically are recognized as my brother or my sister and we're part of the family. And so if we're loving each other, that is the way that our minds transformed. Um, I, oh yeah. And, and, and there's, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's really difficult sometimes. But he says, do so. Amen. He says, love unfeigned. Now, unfeigned means without hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy, now I'm starting to get dry here. Hypocrisy means to wear a mask. So don't love while you're wearing a mask. Are you saying we're all hypocrites for the past few years? No. So that's what you're saying. No, we genuinely loved. We genuinely loved those people. Um, We just... Uh, disagree with them, and maybe we weren't as upfront about our disagreements. Uh, and I feel like I was pretty transparent with most people about where I stood on things. But I did love those people truly, and I, and I I love um, all the people that I've known as believers. And even if I don't get to see them, and even if I don't get to invest in their life or uh, their lives are invested in mine, uh, I think back to Mount Hope Community Church. Like those people, they're my family. I don't know when I'll see them again. There are some of them that I probably won't see until I get to heaven, but they're my family. That's one of the hardest things about moving back and forth. It is. It's very hard. I have these little pockets of people that I just love so dearly, and I can't see them all at the same time. And what binds you together? And that's the question that I wrote down here. Why do I love these strangers? From a worldly perspective, unless you have common common background, common history, maybe not necessarily blood, but unless you have some commonality, then there's no reason to really love that person. That's the way the world thinks. Like, of course, they, you might be taught, yeah, you might be taught common courtesy to people, but are you going to really love fervently someone that you don't even know? But guys, we were all strangers at one point. We didn't know each other and y'all are like my family. I love y'all and I love spending time with you. Um, so if you love each other fervently and, and you come to this conclusion, wow, we all could have missed out on this. If we wouldn't have known Jesus, we wouldn't have known this. What does that then in turn do? It makes you think, well, if Scott is my brother and he's my brother because of his faith and I had no idea what I was missing out on okay, in this family until I came to know Jesus, until he came to know Jesus. What about all these other people out there that don't know Jesus and they could, they could be plugged into this exact same thing. And again, I would have not had this if it wasn't for someone coming to me. So then shouldn't I go to them? So that's the way you transform your mind. You know, what happens is though, if you get in a church and you don't have that kind of fervent love, that real dedication to one another, y'all be quiet now. If you don't have that fervent love towards one another, then I think you're not going to be thinking about people outside. If you're not even thinking about people inside the church, why would you think about people outside the church? And, and people might say, well, we need to go knock on doors. We need to go pass out tracks. It's like, yes, we should, we should reach out, but it almost becomes wooden. Like it's something we got to do. It's like, but you know, y'all are all about going on knocking on doors, but you don't even love each other when you come together in church. I mean, how can you really love the lost unless you're loving each other? You can't. Now, it's not saying that we got to perfect this love before we start loving them, okay? Because we're always going to need to work on problems, even in churches. Um, you know, human beings are sinful, but 
there is, especially Steve, you know, but, but there's a logical priority. We love other people because we first were loved by the Lord and brought into this family. And as we bask in God's love in this family, and as we experience the joys of this family, then we say, we need to get other people in on this too. And so that's where it starts. So what's our reason though? What's our reason for loving one another? Well, you've been purified, he said, and it was by obeying the truth. And a lot of people will say, well, that's like practical, you know, obeying the truths of Jesus, love one another. And I don't think so. Okay. I think purification here is referring to them being born again. I mean, in the context, he does say um, in the very next verse, verse 23, being born again. So I think they were purified when they were born again. And how were they born again? By obeying the truth. Notice obeying the truth. It doesn't say obeying the commandments, obeying the law, obeying. The, now, how do you obey the truth? God presents the truth and says, believe this. And when you say, I believe, you just obey the truth. That's what obedience of faith is. And I'm going to have a whole sermon on this. I don't know exactly what passage it'll be based on, but it's something I think the Lord's been leading me to understand better and share with others. But Paul talks a lot about obeying the gospel. Right. Obedience of the faith. Peter says the same thing here. Obeying the truth, which is the word of God, the gospel. And so a lot of people think, okay, in order to get saved, I've got to do these things. I've got these commandments that I've got to keep. And that's the sort of obedience that God expects. To get saved, there's only one form of obedience that God expects. Obey the truth. That's it. I mean, now, obviously, we wouldn't think that scene, that's not a lot of obedience, is it? That's pretty simple, right? You'd think, like, just obeying the truth. Is that too hard? Well, it shouldn't be, right? God made it pretty easy for us. But when God tells you to do something, whatever it is, okay, even if it's sit down and take a load off, when you say yes to God, you just obeyed. So it's kind of ironic that God's like, yeah, you do have to obey me. But what I'm telling you to do is stop working. Stop striving. Let me save you. Again, that's, that's the greatest irony is, is people thinking that we have to obey God and get to heaven. And he's saying, by, <laughs> by not believing, you're disobeying. By not stopping and trusting me, you are disobeying me. Stop it. And again, I've had examples of this, like uh, Katie's grandma, she'll, you know, do stuff for us every now and then. Like she'll, you know, get us a cup of coffee. And I'm like, no, I don't, don't do that. Like she's got bad knees. You know, she, I'm like, no, you're going to sit down. I'll make it. She's like, no, sit down. And she'll get indignant. She'll be like, no, I'm doing this for you. You can do this for me some other time if you want. But right now I'm serving you. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, I'm not going to argue with it. And there'll be times like she's given us a gift. Like, Nana, you've given us a gift before. And we'll be like, no, we can't have this. And you're like, you're going to make me mad if you don't take it. Because you're stealing her blessing. Exactly. And so God is saying, let me bless you. Now, there will be a day where you can do something else for me, okay? In fact, when we get saved, he's going to change us so we can serve. But right now, that's not for you. Let me serve you. And then later on, you can serve me by serving other people. Just as I've served you, you can do that to those around you. Just as I've come to you with my love, you can go to other people with my love and reflect that to them. So you've been purified is the, the first reason. And the second one is you have been eternally born again. And it's born again by the word of God. And the word of God is referring to a promise. And God's promise is one that's incorruptible. Now, what does an incorruptible promise mean? It means it's one that doesn't get broken. That's what it means. God is saying here, this is some of those things that you can, if you don't really carefully read it, you can pass right over it. 
But when Peter goes on and on about the word of God doesn't pass away, he's speaking specifically about the promise that God made to you when you heard the good news. He says, this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. When you heard the gospel, the good news, and you believed it, you accepted a promise. Now, what was God's promise? I'm going to save you eternally. That's the promise. Now, of course, God includes other promises in the gospel. The gospel is not only do I give you this for free, this eternal life, but after all, you know, I have other things that you can do for me and you can earn heavenly rewards. You can lay up treasure in heaven. You know, we talked about that last week, but this is a promise that cannot be broken. And so the unconditional aspect of the gospel, which is accept eternal life as a free gift, he's never going to break that. And so that is the reason for why we love one another. God loved you that much that he made a promise that he never will break because he can't lie. And when he made that promise, it was a promise of an eternal nature. Now, there are certain promises that are not of an eternal nature. When he promised the Jewish people, like, I'll bless you in the land if you obey the law. Well, yeah, that, that wasn't eternal. Like, even if they did obey, like, he's going to bless them only so long as they're obeying. But when they stop obeying, then there's no more blessings. This is one of those blessings that once you receive it, it never ends because it's not based on your faithfulness. It's based on God's faithfulness. And so, um, again, wrapping it up, three points. God's made a sacred choice of us. When we placed our faith in him, he set us apart for service by his grace. We have a sacred redemption through his blood, and that's to our hope, hope in the future salvation, which will be revealed, and our holiness, which we should be living on a day-by-day basis. And lastly, our sacred mission is through new birth, through being born again, and it's unto divine love. And we start with one another. And then next week, we'll talk about how we take that beyond the confines of the church to the lost. If you're listening to this, thank you so much. I hope that it's been a blessing to you. And uh, well, that's it.